Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Richard Buzzi-Kelly, our lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy. And today, what we want to do is cover the legacy of John Paul II. Uh, we just celebrated his uh, 100th birthday. Um, and so what we want to do is... Uh, kind of look at some particular aspects of John Paul II. There's there's just so much to cover because he was just such a, a giant figure, uh, uh, not just in church history, but in but in world history as well. And so um, Dr. Buzzichelli uh, is an expert in the thought of John Paul II. And so uh, we, we thought we'd kind of try to narrow our scope uh, in this podcast, looking at some different aspects of John Paul II, but I'm sure we can we'll grow and grow and we'll do our best to, to stay on topic and all of that. Um, so Dr. Buzzichelli, uh, to get us started, maybe kind of give us uh, just, you know, quick introduction to John Paul II with regards to kind of, and maybe the scope of what we want to cover uh, specifically uh, in this podcast. Sure. Well, there's a lot you can talk about with John Paul II, right? And yeah. he was Pope for 20 what 27 seven years, years yeah. something like that i mean it was a long it was a long reign as pope and before that of course he had an ecclesiastical and philosophical career so you know there's there's a lot you yeah. can talk about we're not going to talk about this isn't going to be a general overview of right. everything that he ever said or thought right um but i think there are some important things to keep in mind about who he was mm-hmm. uh and and i think that what we want to talk about in light of who he was were some of the really important um, contributions, right. That he made during the course of his, uh, of his papacy. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I had um, done a short YouTube video uh, about um, what, what, what was his major contribution. And there, you know, I picked one thing, uh, and and I'm not ready to die um, for the claim, right? But it was his theology of the body. But mm-hmm. I don't really want to talk about that today. Sure. Um, but you know, arguments can be made that was very important, and mm-hmm. and and the argument that I made that it was very important was that it sort of crystallized uh, a couple of the important aspects of his thinking as a whole. Right. Yeah. That he was a personalist and a phenomenologist. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but, but I don't want to descend into a discussion of theology of the body. Right. Um, instead, what, what I think is really important for us in thinking about him as Pope, right, is, is to see that during, the time in, during his time in the throne of Peter, um, he stood in the breach. Mm-hmm. And while it's true, he certainly wasn't perfect. He wasn't beyond criticism. Uh, nonetheless, right, and it wasn't that he didn't make mistakes. Some of them were fairly significant, mm-hmm. but um, but that all things considered, right, he was he was a man on a mission for the church, and and he stood in the breach against a rising tide of secular progressive thinking that that was even inside the church. Yeah. Now. People who are very church aware would not be surprised at this news, but looking at things 
from the outside imagining the church as you know sort of if you don't think much about the church and you just think it's always been there yeah yeah uh and you think well of course you know it's 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 the it's the bulwark of the faith well then it's not going to occur to you that you know that even inside the church there's all kinds of intrigue sure and people pushing for agendas that are in some time in some instances um really antithetical to christianity mm-hmm and John Paul II was um, was deeply aware of those tendencies and pushed against them at all levels, right? Inside yeah. the church, um, outside the church, in secular society, with um, thinking in terms of, you know, what we find expressed in ostensibly Catholic institutions, right, from philosophy departments and Sure. theology departments um so that was that was a major thing for him right yeah 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 and uh, even when you think about you know like the the situation today and you know we we bring up you know that the church is fighting the culture of death and there's even those within the church that may hold you know uh, uh heterodox views and and you know just erroneous ideas and things like that that's a lot different than what John Paul II faced when he became Pope. I mean, the, the, the secular regimes that were on the outside, I mean, you're talking, you know, full-fledged communism. You're talking uh, crazy experimentations by people inside the church after Vatican II. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, we're, we still have some of the lingering effects to that. But, I mean, he really became Pope at a time when, uh, uh, not just the, the the things in the in the church, but I mean, just the the, the secular pressures and the secular regimes pushing back on him uh, were so much stronger, so much more, uh, uh, I think, rooted um, than than they are today. You know, so yeah. even though we may still have some of the lingering problems, they didn't have the force. I don't I don't think they have the force well, that they did when he became pope. Yeah, you know? in some ways, yes; in some ways, no. I think yeah. we could probably argue about that. But let me, but. But backing up, let's let's look at. I, I mentioned I was going to say, um, you know, where did he come from? Who was he? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that because it helps us to, it helps us to position him relative to these conflicts. Sure. Um. So you know, most people know at this point he's he's so famous. Most people have a general idea, you know, of of what his background was. But but I want to say, you know, he we should always remember that he grew up. Um, he grew up during a terrible time in the history of Poland, right? Mm-hmm. So before, I mean, until fairly, actually, Poland was at, uh, during the 20th, during most of the 20th century, right? The most Catholic country on earth. Mm-hmm. In spite of the fact that it spent a good deal of the 20th century under the oppression of secular, uh, of secular materialistic regimes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so it came under occupation by the Nazis at the beginning of the first of the Second World War, right? And then um, once it was liberated from Nazi control, it was liberated by by whom? Well, ultimately the the Russians, right? And <laughs> and so it came under communist rule after the Second World War, really from 1939 until the um, until the dissolution of the Soviet bloc, Poland was Poland was was ruled by 
secular materialist regimes, which were hostile to the church. Now they fared better, the church fared better under communism than it had under Nazism. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that was, was really that, was really that, um, you know, Nazism was all about Germany for the most part, right? It was sure. all about the Aryan race. And it was in this respect, um, more ideological, I suppose you'd say, right? Mm -hmm. Then, than the communists were. Yeah. Um, and of course they were ready to, I mean, they, they didn't really seem to have much difficulty in, in committing um, genocide. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say that the Russians weren't brutal and <laughs> killed lots and lots of people. Right. But, yeah. but they were more practical in their thinking. And for their, from their point of view, they thought, well, look, the church in Poland is too strong a force to battle against. There, what's to be gained mm -hmm. in waging that war? Wouldn't it be better to just sort of have a truce with them? Yeah. Let them go along and, and do their, do their Catholic thing kind of, you know, in private. Uh, as long as it doesn't interfere with what we're doing in the realm of politics. Um, you know, much like what, what you would find, say, under, under the Obama administration in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe to a, a, to a, obviously to a greater degree than what we saw under Obama, but the same basic sure. thinking, right? Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a practical kind of arrangement, and they found a way to to kind of, live under the radar, right? To kind of, to kind of have their, their Catholic interaction without um, disturbing the state too much. Too much, right. But obviously there are limits to that. Yeah. And inevitably um, there are going to be times when the gospel and um, the gospel and Caesar will butt heads, right? That that's going to happen, um, because because of course there are, there are areas in which the gospel has implications when it comes to affairs of state, particularly when what the state wants to do is objectively evil, yeah. right? Uh, so so that's kind of his historical situation, right? But. Now look at his philosophical situation. So he, he was, as I mentioned before, right? He was a personalist and he was uh, a phenomenologist. Mm -hmm. And these are not identical ideas, but they're historically related. Sure. They're sort of coincident to each other for the most part. Both of these movements are predominantly, though not exclusively, outgrowths of a Judeo-Christian philosophical tradition, mm -hmm. right? So you see the major figures that you find in both phenomenology and personalism tend to be, with some notable exceptions, like Heidegger, who was a Nazi, right? Right. But they tend to be um, Jews and Catholics for the most part, right? And in some instances, Jews who went on to become Catholics. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Right, you think of uh, Martin Buber, who was a Jew, right? right. You think of uh, Max Scheler, 
who was a right. Jew who became a Catholic, then eventually went off the deep end, but that's another story. Um, uh, Edmund Husserl, who was a Jew, right? Uh, Edith Stein, who was a Jew and then became a Catholic, then died in a concentration camp at the hands of the Nazis. Um, right? So we could go on in this list, but they're almost, almost all of them are Jews and or Catholics, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what are they doing? Well, they're reacting to um, the philosophical world after Immanuel Kant. Right. Uh, so Immanuel Kant made metaphysics impossible, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> everything is just appearances, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so everything, all we have is appearances to go by. And since he says, well, I don't know, I don't, I can't see beyond my appearances, right? By yeah. definition, yeah, yeah. right? I can't see beyond my appearances. And so I, I can't, once you accept this sort of scientistic empiricism, right? Sure. You, you end up with, well, look, I can't, it's not there to be perceived for me. Yeah. And so I can say nothing about it. The noumenal realm is, is it, he can only be completely, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Skeptic at best. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, he, he can, he can say, nothing about it right yeah uh, but what he can say something about is um is how he thinks and so it all comes down to the categories of his mind right and that's really what so when he talks about doing metaphysics what he's really talking about is talking about how the his mind processes perception in terms yeah. of the rational categories in which he thinks but he doesn't think he's actually making statements about the thing itself. things in themselves, right? Yeah. The being yeah, yeah. gun seek is, is, is off limits. So why don't the phenomenologists just say, yeah, let's go, let's forget about Kant and go back to the way things were before that. Mm -hmm. That's the tendency, right? Right. And in Catholicism, you know, you saw Neotomism, um, as basically doing that, right? I mean, they they just said, yeah, some major mistakes were made at some point, starting with like Descartes. And um, and maybe they'll say even earlier than that, we can trace it back to, sure. to Occam or something. You know, um, and let's just unmake those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Those were wrong, those were dead end roads. And rather than go down those, let's just trace back to where we were before we made those mistakes and move on from there. Mm -hmm. So why not that option? Well, I, I think the reason that we find uh, among the phenomenologists is that they do think they do think that some that there was some truth in what Kant was saying, right? That 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 the questions that were asked were legitimate questions. Maybe they were poorly framed. Maybe sure. they you know, they pointed us ultimately in the wrong direction. They were framed in such a way as to give rise to, to unworkable solutions or something. But, but this doesn't mean that, that, that real problems were not identified. Mm -hmm. And so they want, to, they, they want to treat those problems on their own terms and find a way forward, not just, not just 
you know, like there's nothing to see here. There's no question to ask here. And let's just go back and do Thomism, right? Yeah. They wanted to, they wanted to confront those same problems that were being identified um, and, and find a way forward that did not lead in the direction that things went after Immanuel Kant. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, to, I mean, it was really like just killing, killing the conversation. You know, if you, if you have a group that just says, well, we don't believe in, you know, kind of a Thomistic metaphysics or anything like that. And another group saying, well, all we have to do is go back to a Thomistic metaphysics. You know, it kind of kills the conversation. And so you had a group that wanted to say, okay, how can we give a, a satisfactory answer uh, to these people that have uh, these objections and maybe they reject a Thomistic metaphysics or something like that. Is it possible? And that's the job of the philosopher. I mean, to be, to be honest, I mean, that's the job of the philosopher to say, is there a way that we can give satisfactory answers to these modern questions that are coming from a, a um, maybe a Kantian viewpoint uh, that that'll satisfy them? Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a I think that's a, a, a noble and a um you know a, a praiseworthy thing to to take up. It's a huge task, I think, to take up. Um but uh yeah. It is. And and I think that we would have to say that um you know it's it's far from complete. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that in the course of his lifetime Wojtyla, John Paul II, um, believed that it had been completed. I think, I think he still, he thought it was still something that needed to occur. Sure. But I think he saw phenomenology as the, the, investiga the investigative tool, mm -hmm. right, to use in order to pave the way to a new metaphysic. Right. Um, now, the... Um, so he wants to preserve many of the things that we find in, in traditional metaphysics, particularly mm -hmm. in Thomism, right? But, but he also wants to, um, as I said, he wants to answer these, these other questions, right? He wants to find a way to treat, um, he wants to try to wait, find a way to treat these other things. So, so let's look at the question, say, of um, the thing in itself, right? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. is the problem with the thing in itself? Right. This is, this, is, this is the big question, right? When people talk about what's wrong with phenomenology, one of the things they criticize is that phenomenologists don't like to talk about the thing in itself. Yeah. Okay. But try to understand this problem, okay? Now... And I have to admit, when I first encountered phenomenology, I was very much in the Thomistic camp. And I was, I, I, I saw this problem just as absurdity, right? Sure. But, um, but I don't think I do anymore. And, and here's, and I think that I used to misunderstand the nature of the difficulty. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically, the problem is this, right? That for me to talk about the thing in itself, I have to claim to know a thing as it is apart from my knowing it. Right. Yeah. That I think is the, that I think is the problem that the phenomenologists are recognizing. Sure. And I, I, I can't know a thing apart from my knowing it. 
right? Yeah, so in you fact, can't you can't know it at all. You can't know it at all. That's what Kant would say. So you just can't know. Well, it that's at what Kant would say, and the phenomenon is <laughs> like, no, you can. Yeah, that's the yeah. difference. Yeah, and that's where I think that that's where I think we need to. It would be really great if if you know Thomist critics of phenomenology could understand that they're what they're actually trying to do is not be Kantian. Right. 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 Yeah. So. So yeah, Kant would say you can't know it at all. And they would be, no, you can, but not as it is without you knowing it. That's an absurdity. Yeah. Right. So now, as I was saying, this is not even a new problem, right? We recognize in Thomas himself that a thing is known uh, according to the mode of knowing of the knower. Right. Right. That the way in which I there's a way in which I know things that's that's specifically um, that's kind of specifically differentiated intellectually to the knower. Sure. The way I the way I know a tree is different than the way a dog knows a tree. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, but is there a thing you're knowing, Mm -hmm. a thing that exists apart from your knowing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there is, and I think the phenomenologists want to affirm that yeah but what they want to say is yet right so there really is a thing producing the phenomena Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right um as opposed to Kant who says actually I don't know whether there's anything producing them or not they might just spontaneously appear (laughs) for all I know because cause and effect is just a category in my mind I don't know if it actually applies outside my mind right maybe they just spontaneously appear then the phenomenon is like dude no (laughs) there's something causing them okay yeah yeah um but your encounter with that object is mediated through your experience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you just need to accept that but but um if we recognize that that things like cause and effect that these categories of the mind are not just categories of the mind right mm-hmm. but an intersection between mind and world then we can begin to see right that what my mind is doing with the perceptions mm-hmm. that as the thing that produces the perceptions is mediated through my perceptions yeah right it's mediated in such a way that truth about the thing can be discerned. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. kind of what they're actually after. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense to you? Yeah. 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 It's a huge project. It's a, it's a kind of a, a, a just a, a different way to get at the thing of in itself. Uh, um, and a, a different ap- approach, you know, than, um, you know, uh, tom- a Thomistic metaphysics. Um, but one that addresses the current, you know philosophical uh, kind of disposition yeah and, and uh, of the world and it's not it's not completely foreign to thomas right i mean yeah 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 right yeah. so like thomas is starting with thomas is starting with what he and he recognizes that the way we perceive the world influences the way we can know it sure yeah, right? yeah. he recognizes that he recognizes that my access, my access to truth, um, 
depends upon my experience of things, right? I can't, I can't come to know something which is absolutely divorced from the realm of experience. Yeah. 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 Even, and this is, and again, this is something that's, you know, like you said, it's, this is something that's still being worked out. It's, you know, interesting to be in this time, you know, with regards to this, you know, even I remember hearing a, um, a lecture, I think it was by Peter Kraft. Yeah. Yeah. Who was talking about, I think the, the title of the lecture was like Tomersonalism or, you know, um, <laughs> where he was trying to, to bring these two together um, uh, that there, that there seems to be a way forward with regards to these to where uh, they're, they're, they differ, um, but they may not, they may not necessarily be uh, uh, contradictory. Um, it's just that, especially the, 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 the personalist side needs to be developed a little bit. Yeah. More. So the personalist side as opposed to phenomenological is probably the real, yeah. to me, really the more difficult area when it comes to um, tensions with Thomism. Right. So, you know, and obviously there are people who would take up um, whatever position, right. With respect to these claims, but sure. Um, but you know, but I think, to me, I've, I've come to see phenomenology as, as, I mean, maybe it's the kind of thing that Thomas would have been involved in had he been alive today. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. What, what yeah. do I know? But I, <laughs> but it seems to me when I think about it, it's like, well, it, it does seem completely consistent, as I said, with his thesis that the that the thing is known according to the mode of knowledge of the knower. Yeah. Right. And, um, and that, you know, you, you start with experience and you, and you build out from there, right. Mm -hmm. To see what your experience can disclose. Uh, phenomenology is basically doing that, that same thing, but with a great deal more awareness of certain problems mm -hmm. with knowledge and perception um, right. That, that we derive largely from contemporary science, right. Right. Of which Thomas couldn't know anything. Right. I mean, for Thomas light was, uh, was a medium for sight like air is for sound. Mm. Right. And we know that that's not true anymore. And right. because of the things we know about light, it affects what we can say about perception and so on and so forth. Right. So there are all kinds of, difficulties that contemporary science raises with respect to the sort of presuppositions we would have made before mm -hmm. and upon which some of our judgments would have been based. Okay. When it comes to metaphysics, but that aside, okay. So one of the things, the real area of tension as I see it is with personalism. Mm -hmm. um, early in his career, Wojtyla had written a, an essay called Thomistic Personalism. Mm -hmm. And so it was in the 1940s he wrote this essay very, very early in his career, right? It was one of his, he was wet behind the years, you know, very green when he wrote it and he never revisited it. Mm, um, so many people will quote this, will reference it. Uh, oh, Thomistic Personalism. And all they'll talk about is Thomistic Personalism saying that Wojtyla saw himself as a Thomistic Personalist. Right. And I don't believe that that is true. I don't believe it's true because I think there came a point 
at which he realized that there's a point of departure between Thomism and personalism. Mm. Um, and, and that is, and this is actually an issue about which he spoke at great length. Now, he, he never wrote in a way that displayed any hostility toward Thomism. Mm-hmm. I think he just, he loved Thomas too much to do that, but he had strong disagreements with some of Thomas's views mm-hmm. concerning the person, right? So Thomas held essentially a cosmological view of the person. Namely, that the person is a part of the cosmos and exists for the sake of the perfection of the cosmos, right? So God wishes to make a cosmos in which yeah. he displays his glory, and he does this by having these rational beings that can have the idea of God in their minds, can turn to him in worship, right? Some of them being elevated to grace and to glory, and basking in the, in the beatific vision, others not, and being punished for sin, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and in this way, right, the whole spectrum of the possible perfections of things that God could make is displayed, as well as God's, um, God's mercy on the one hand in forgiving mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. restoring, right, and perfecting the elect, and on the other hand, God's um, wrath and justice in punishing the sinner, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, this, is, this is the perfect cosmos, as Thomas is thinking of it. Human beings exist so that God could do that in creation. That's not the way, that's not the way Wojtyla sees creation. Right. We have the personalistic norm, right? Yeah, this personalistic norm, right? So the way Wojtyla sees God glorifying himself in creation, right, mm-hmm. is that he creates a being that can um, reflect in itself God's own mode of existence and be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And consciously respond to God in love and worship, right? So this view does not presuppose the need for the reprobate. Right. Right. Um, the, um, so that's what he sees as being the, you know, the display of God's glory, right? So he sees then human beings not as not as um ingredients right in in this big soup which is which is the perfect cosmos and they play right. their their particular role they are in this respect according to Voitius thinking reduced right to that function right that cosmic function and that reduction of the person to a function is the very thing that personalism rails against. Right. That the person, I mean, the person is an end in and of, created as an end in and of itself. It's not a means to the end of this perfect cause. That's right. And his language is very, very strong here. Yeah. 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 Right? He, he applies it even to God. He says that basically saying the very idea of personhood would be violated. Mm-hmm. If, if God were to do that, 
right? Mm -hmm. Not even God himself can reduce the person to, to a mere end. Now, he's not saying that God, that there are limits to, you know, what God can do. Sure. He's sure, just sure, saying, sure. look, if, what, if we're saying that God made persons, then we're saying that he made things that are not means to his ends. Right. Right. That, that they're not just means to his ends. They're goods in and of themselves. Right. Which means, right, that, which means that there can't be on this view, um, you know, this, the, so Thomas says something very strong, right, mm -hmm. in his, in his treatment of the ideas of predestination and reprobation, mm -hmm. where he says that more than any other creature in the cosmos, man is made, right, more than, is man more than any other creature is made for the perfection of the universe, right. is what he says, right? But he says, um, he said, oh, no, no, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. He says, he says, the elect specifically, the yeah. elect more than any other thing are made for the perfection of the cosmos. But he says, the reprobate are made for the, for the sake of the elect. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. So, yeah. So you've got a two tiered order of human worth. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it and that's, it seems to me that's just not deniable in, in Thomas's view the elect are more good. Now, I don't mean good. They're more morally good, obviously. No one's right. denying that. Waitiwa doesn't deny that. Right. Waitiwa does not say people can't go to hell. And he doesn't say that everyone is morally good. Right. Right. But I'm talking about ontological. Ontological. Yeah, and we've we've talked about this before on the the, yeah. the 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 podcast, the difference there between the ontological and the moral good yeah. of people. Right. So for Thomas, though, like, the reprobate, they really are ontologically destined yeah. to be less and at the service of these others, right? Um, and that's just something that Wojtyla flatly denies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So that, that's a major difference between them. And, that, and those, those, those views maybe helps to, to situate, right, what, who Wojtyla is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I think with you know with again looking at his and you know his legacy from a a, a broad perspective, uh, um, you could see how a lot of the a lot of the things in his life, from you know his philosophical uh, you know leanings uh, or, or approaches to just his life experience with you know the the authoritative nature of Nazism and communism. Uh, uh, and their treatment and reduction of the human person is just, you know, yeah, right. kind of just everything it points to him really, you know, I think taking up this, this tension uh, between, between these two things and trying to come to a solution, you know, uh, um, I, I think, that, you yeah. know, again, it's, it's a tough, that's a tough thing to, to bring about, to bring together in a satisfactory way, you know, and to answer the, yeah. the, the modern questions, you know, uh, uh, of people without simply just saying, "Oh, well, you just need to accept Thomistic metaphysics." Like, <laughs> how can we, how can we, you know, answer people satisfactorily, uh, satisfactory, uh, like this? You know, that's um, right. And and I think so. We see a couple of things in in John Paul II as Pope. Yeah. Right. One is he made a lot of mistakes in terms of governance. Right. Um, and 
And those mistakes were actually carried over in many mm -hmm. ways by Benedict. Mm -hmm. um, they were of similar minds as far as this issue goes. Both of them lived under the authoritarian regimes of Nazism right. in their youth. Um, but Benedict, you know, fortunately was, was free of um, the communists after the war, right? He was from Bavaria right. rather than East Germany. But the, um, but, but when you live under these authoritarian regimes, right, you, you might see the idea that people should simply be silenced and removed and suppressed, mm -hmm. right, as, mm -hmm. as very distasteful. Yeah. Particularly when you yourself have been subject to this kind of treatment, right? Yeah. Uh, so not just in the abstract, but concretely, both, uh, and even within the church, right? Both, at one point, um, Wojtyla, I think there was a dossier on him at one point uh, from the Holy Office of the Inquisition, and there certainly was on Ratzinger, mm -hmm. right? Um, so both of them were were held under suspicion, and so kind of living in this way, I suppose, can make a person reticent to um to deal that way with others when it when they ultimately come into the position of authority and i think we see this reflected in both Wojtyla and ratzinger right yeah. both john paul ii and benedict when they're in the position to make these calls they govern with a much softer hand for the most part yeah well and, yeah i mean one of the problems at... is one of the problems with this is some of the really terrible um, authority figures who came up in the church and stayed around, mm -hmm. right, for a long period of time, virtually unchecked. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they didn't, they just didn't bring the hammer down, right, except on very rare occasions. Right, right. And I think even when you think about, you know, who they were, I mean, both John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger or Benedict, you know, they were both, you know, intellectuals, you know? So, I mean, that was their, that was their battlefield, uh, mm -hmm. was the, was the intellectual battlefield. So even when they encountered, you know, people who practically were, were, uh, causing great harm and all these things for, I think for them, the way they saw forward, the way they saw the way we need to fight these is, you know, uh, more intellectually than say, you know, practically by, you know, picking them up and removing them or, you know, uh, uh, coming down with a hard hand, you know, not unsim you know, not you know, similar to maybe the way that they had experienced, you know, their, their youth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a, I think that's a huge uh, point to, to when you, when we think about their governing, um, you know, uh, to think about also where did they come from with regards to kind of a uh, a central authority and the exercise of the power that came from that central authority. Yeah. That had great effects well, on, on them. That's right. And the problem is though, of course, um, damage was done as yeah. a result. A lot. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a great admirer of both John Paul II and Benedict, but yeah, but I, I, I do see certain damage having been done. More under John Paul II. Um, Benedict, I think, started to dial things back. Many of the liturgical abuses, right? He sure. Started to, sure. To dial those back. But many of those abuses 
became normalized under John Paul II, right? Yeah. Not all, but some did. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, like the use of um, female acolytes. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's in many places, um, the idea of not having female altar servers is verboten, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but, but that was a concession. And, and the way the concession worked essentially was, well, I mean, come on, is it like absolutely incompatible with the faith? Yeah. Well, I guess not really absolutely incompatible. <laughs> you know, it's not absolutely incompatible, right? I mean, yeah, you yeah. do have historically in the ancient church, you know, these <laughs> these uh, widows and deaconesses who performed certain... Yeah, there's some obscure... Yeah, right? reasoning and, behind and they it. Had yeah. seats in the, they had seats in the, uh, in the sacristy and all this. So, um, in the sanctuary of the church and all, you know, they, so they, whatever, right? It's not complete. And of course, in female houses of worship, um, you know, you might, you might involve uh, some of the sisters more than you otherwise would. Sure. But but that doesn't make it normative for the church and it, it, yeah. it doesn't make it, you know, the, the usual uh, and appropriate thing in liturgy, mm-hmm. um, particularly outside of those extraordinary contexts. And yet because the answer was, well, it's not absolutely incompatible with faith. Then suddenly it's, well, then we can do it. Right. Yeah. See? And it's always presented as, um, a temporary well, thing, right? It's grown up as a custom in this place. Yeah. Right. And so an indult is given to this particular place in this particular kind of context. And then, yeah. and then soon it becomes, it's just inflated and that now it's everywhere. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah. what happened with communion in the hand as well. Yeah. Right. Luckily, luckily there were things that, that, that they did allow to simply die. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those being the uh, uh, children's lectionary. Uh, at least in the United States. So for our listeners who may be a little bit younger, there was a a horrible translation of the readings called the children's lectionary where they, you know, they did away with tough words and and, uh, big words and words that maybe sounded, you know, like people may actually go to hell and things like that. I may be a little exaggerating there, Um, but but it was a complete uh, different translation of sacred scripture that was made for children and the United States had an indult for the, for a long time to use this in masses that were predominantly attended by children. The indult expired and the, the indult was not renewed and the children's lectionary simply went away. It was a great day. It did yeah. not make any press headlines and it just simply disappeared and the church is better for it. Um, but yeah, but yeah like those, there, there was so much experimentation with things going on. And again, you know, um, John Paul II, you know, not just, you know, philosophically, but in so many different ways stood in this breach uh, uh, of time with regards to, to, to so many of these things, um, you know, so, uh, but, but I think even when you look at, say, you know, with, with even like, you know, philosophy and theology and stuff, he wasn't 
he wasn't a subjectivist. Like he still believed no. in things like, you know, uh, 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 per se evil, you know? That's right. Um, so, so let's think about if what he saw as the fish that he needed to fry. I guess that's the, what we need to think about, right? Yeah. So we can complain and, you know, maybe rightly so that a lot of bad things happen to the liturgy. Sure. Um, under his watch, right? That while he was Pope, a lot of bad things happened in the liturgy. Now, a lot of those things had already happened before he showed up, mm -hmm. but, but still, there, were some, there was some worsening, but there were yeah. also some corrections, uh, which, some of which had liturgical effect, Mm -hmm. sacramental effects but but really had to do primarily with what he saw as the biggest problem facing the church at the time mm -hmm. and that's what i think we need to address now we can we can argue about whether he was right or wrong in that judgment sure okay and i know and i know there are people who can say look um what happens in the liturgy is the most important thing that happens in the church and right. if you get that right everything else will fall into place if you get it wrong you won't get anything else right. All right. I understand that argument. In fact, I'm sympathetic to it. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent persuaded by it, but I'm sympathetic to it. Yeah. Right. Now that being said, I just want to be clear about what I think he thought was the biggest problem facing the church. And I think that what he saw was secular materialism, progressivism, mm -hmm. um, uh, postmodernism, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that sort of cluster of philosophical aberration is yeah. what I believe he saw as the biggest problem. Um, and 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 I think that he saw it as a problem not only of the world attacking the church from the outside, but infiltrating the church from within. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, now. In a nutshell, right, when we think about John Paul II, we hear this phrase, the culture of life. Mm -hmm. And we hear this other phrase, the culture of death. Mm -hmm. And we, we often think that the culture of death is just, you know, the, the culture of, um, of thinking abortion is good. Yeah. Right. And being in favor of the death penalty. And that is not accurate. Now I will say that John Paul II associated both of those things with the culture of death. Right. And we can argue about the death penalty thing, but I don't want to have that argument right now. It's not important for this discussion. I mean, I think as things go, it's, it's a, it's a somewhat tangential problem sure. here. Right. But, um, but, he did happen to associate both of those things with the culture of death, but it's important to understand what he saw the culture of death as actually being. Yeah. To not reduce it to simply a pro-life yeah. issue like that. So what is the culture of death? It's the view that actually this life is the only life we've got. Yeah. Right. It's the view that, that death, which places the limit on this life has a voice Mm -hmm. at the table in our moral and spiritual deliberations mm -hmm. that it sets the parameters within which we can live our lives 
right? So if I say, um, you know, I could say morality is good up to a point, but if you continue with these ideals, yeah, then you will throw away the only life you have to live. Yeah. Right. You will die. If you don't have this abortion, you'll die or you'll squander your chances at worldly success. Yeah. Your really life, your, your, your child, quality of life. Your future, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. That's the culture of death. That's what that is. Whereas the culture of life is the view that thanks to what Jesus has done on the cross, mm-hmm. right? Thanks to a God who creates the world out of nothing. Life is more powerful than death. Death is a problem that God can fix. God being, God being loving and merciful and faithful mm-hmm. reveals himself as one who desires to solve that problem and has the power to do so. And for this reason, compromise with evil is never permissible. Right. right? Yeah. That's the culture of life. What, if push comes to shove and I continue to live according to these principles, what, I'll, I'll die or I'll live in misery for the next 70 years? Yeah. Bring it. Yeah. Because yeah, at it, the end of that road, right, at the end of that road is a doorway that opens up to new life, a life that, this, that, this, that death can never touch. Right. Death does not have the final say in, in the, the, the conclusion of your life. That's right. Um, and that's the issue when you understand if you understand that right the culture of death the culture of life that's the issue yeah that and and that encapsulates really this whole problem the the culture of death is secular progressivism secular materialism postmodernism mm-hmm. right that's what that is and so much, and so much of of kind of that that I- ideology bled into to so many different things, even within the church. So you know, you look at you know, and John, and, and again, you could see where John Paul II tried to address these, like very tied to splendor. I think is a great example from yes. the Consortio. So many of the, the the things that he addressed can be traced back to this this. Uh, uh, this disposition of, of the secular world that this life is the only life and this life is is so important that at some point your morality should simply you know fall away uh, um, it can be good up to a certain degree but at some point it simply can you know and this is where you get into ideas like fundamental option theory and things like that yeah. that john paul ii very you know in you know no uncertain terms squashed uh, um, that's right uh, very, very clearly. Um, so with regards to, you know, I think, or the other thing I was thinking about with, with him as well, something that I think we take for granted is even just, uh, uh, the, the foundations that we have as Catholics today that we rely so heavily on, uh, are, are thanks to John Paul II. And I think, uh, you know, one of them, you know, simply being, you know, like the catechism. Um, you know, maybe this is, a to- this is definitely a topic for another p- podcast because I think it's an interesting story. But I mean, even in the United States, you had an entire uh, um, conference that was called 
uh, at Woodstock Theological uh, yeah. Seminary or something like that, um, trying to subvert the publication of the catechism. Uh, uh, um, because, you know, and they, they went on and they had all these, you know, expert theologians and all this stuff trying to, to stop the publication of a catechism. Um, but John Paul II, you know, brought that about. Um, and now, you know, thanks be to God that we have this, you know, uh, norm of teaching uh, for us to rely so heavily on. So, I mean, there's a lot there that points to, you know, John Paul II, uh, yes, he stands in the breach and trying to figure out this this philosophical, uh, uh, all the, the the philosophical issues and, and approaches and things like that. But but with regards to this uh, culture of life, uh, culture of death thing, he really I, I think I think you're a hundred percent correct in pointing that this is what he saw as his main task. And again, he's being attacked on multiple fronts here. That I, you know sometimes I don't think we. Or I, I have trouble just comprehending it. You know, I have to remind myself, oh, yeah, you know, like communism was huge and communism was, you know, flying in the face of, of, of Poland and of uh, the church as well. Um, that he yeah, was I mean, covering. the dude was instrumental in bringing down the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like people often, they just, many people don't understand that his involvement in this. I mean, it was a major he was a major player um, kind of behind the scenes at a cultural level in, in making that a possibility. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which I think we kind of just take for granted. Like we haven't had, you know, uh, um, or I guess, well, it's starting to come back. Sadly, it's starting to come back into popularity, but we haven't had the communistic forces at a popular level or at a mainstream kind of level like he did. Uh, we haven't yeah. had that in years, and I think you know we do forget about that. Um, that it, that was huge, um, yeah. and, and so and, and I think even when you look at say, uh, you know his his encyclicals and his writings, you know you could see where where he was um, uh, really trying to 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 bring the church. I mean, his first you know encyclical being on uh, um, the, the the mission of the redeemer, the redeemer of man. Um, so many of these, you know, were, were again, focused on Christ, uh, uh, you know, again, trying to push back on that idea that, that death has the final say, mm-hmm. that the human person can be re- reduced to a, a means to an end, uh, and, and, you know, that entire uh, uh, project uh, of him. Um, any, any other uh, final thoughts, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I do have some. I, I think on? so. Sure. Yeah, so I think it's important actually to address a question, an issue that you raised earlier, which was mm-hmm. whether, you know, whether we see the same kinds of problems today, whether they're as bad. And I think actually in some ways they're worse. Okay. Right? Um, so, so one of the really important things that we saw from John Paul II, right, as we've mentioned, is the idea that there really is content, identifiable content to Mm -hmm. the gospel. Mm -hmm. That if we're going to be Christian, it involves certain affirmations, affirmations from revelation and rational postures, right? right? That we have to adopt philosophically, regardless of our particular philosophical paradigm, broadly speaking. Sure, 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 sure. There are some that are off limits. Okay, so 
radical skepticism has no place in a Christian mind. Right. Right. Um, materialism mm -hmm. is not a Christian posture. You cannot be a Marxist. Right. And be uh, a Christian. Right. So it doesn't mean you have to be a Thomist, but it does mean that you have to believe that there's more than just matter. Mm -hmm. Right. It means that you have to believe that there is truth that there's consistency in the structure of the world mm -hmm. and that the world is knowable to us, at least in some way. Right. right? <clears throat> Those are things you have to affirm. Uh, if you're going to be a Christian. Yeah. And okay? sadly those have to be reaffirmed. <laughs> yeah. You have to believe in human nature and believing in human nature. You then have to affirm that some things are appropriate to human beings. Mm -hmm. We call them good and others inappropriate to human beings, we call them evil, right? Mm -hmm. That there are actions that we could take, which in taking constitute our own moral profile. I become morally good or morally bad on the basis of the actions that I take. In taking this action, I make myself the kind of person who would do this, Yeah. right? I mean, that's the kind of person you are. How do I know? Well, you just did it, right? <laughs> okay. It is, it is that simple. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it is. And we could talk for hours about the implications of this view and how they played out in various things that John Paul II did as Pope. Yeah. But, <clears throat> but these are some things that he affirmed strongly throughout the course of his papacy. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, um, Today, we've seen an introduction of ambiguity yeah. in the absence of John Paul II and, uh, and Benedict, who were very clear voices as far as, you know, these, these parameters, right? Yeah. And I, I'm not talking about like they told you the things you had to think, but they set the boundaries. They defined clearly where the boundaries were beyond which you could not. Yeah call yourself orthodox, okay? We're seeing that without their constant reaffirmation, many of the voices that were still around, right, that had been corrected but not completely removed from the scene, yeah. have reasserted themselves. Right. And we find ourselves now in a world where, uh, where there are sympathizers within the church and a secular society outside the church that is more militant than ever. Yeah. Now things like, I mean, we're the problem of gender theory has reached, has reached a point that even under Benedict, we didn't see. Right. Right. So. Um, or did we, I mean, or did we think we'd get to this point this fast? You know, that's yeah. the other thing is the speed to which we've gotten to this point of, you know, Right, because it right because it seems as if once once they these things were not constantly and habitually kind of corrected, right? Mm -hmm. um, you sort of let your hand off the off the rein, and it just goes right. The horse just goes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that I think is culturally what what has happened. 
Mm. Again, it's Good not point. just inside the church, but outside the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, a, and it affects inside the church. There are proponents for it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's important for us not to be naive to think that the things that affect the world do not affect the church, that the church is just this, you know, some kind of Island that is, you know, magically immune or even, you know, even if you want to say supernaturally immune uh, from the issues of the world, uh, she may be preserved in the end, um, but that doesn't mean in the meantime, she's not affected by these things, you know, from within. This does nothing right. to reduce her whole, her own holiness. Um, uh, but at the same time, it does uh, uh, take away from, I think, the, the, the profundity of her voice um, to speak uh, to these things exactly. Yeah. Um, so I right, think, uh, yeah. I think if we if we if we don't appreciate what John Paul II sure did for the church, right? Then I mean just imagine if he had never been there. Yeah. Imagine if now you might say, well, if he hadn't been there, somebody better would have been there. I don't know, maybe who knows? Maybe not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to think that the guy who's in the chair right now is the best choice that could yeah. have been made. And you don't have to, you don't have to think that about Francis and you don't have to think about John Paul II, but he was the Pope and, and given certain alternatives. Right. right um, we, I think we should be, in my own view is we should be grateful for what he did. Yeah. If he had not intervened in the ways that he had, and I think he was uniquely positioned philosophically right. to address many of these problems. Um, my own view is he was uniquely positioned philosophically to do it in a way that was intelligent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not saying other people were idiots or anything, but I mean, I, I think he was uniquely positioned to address the world in, in terms that, that actually did affect the cultural dialogue outside the church. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and to good effect, at least in terms of stemming the tide that was flowing at the time. Yeah. For, for that, I'm very grateful for his papacy. All right. Very good, Dr. Buzikelli. I think you've given our listeners, you know, a, a lot to think about, a lot to consider, uh, especially when you're talking about somebody as, as gigantic as John Paul II was, uh, to look at, to look at his contributions uh, um, in light of the, the the secular regimes that have reared their ugly heads, uh, um, not necessarily something new, but something that uh, is you know uh, around today. Uh, and so, I want to thank all of our listeners. Uh, check out all of our content over at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Dr. Bruce Kelly has uh, all kinds of courses in theology that we can take over there. And in the meantime, God bless.